0: Welcome to Hub & Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub & Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hello, everybody, and welcome
1: to another episode of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Senior Editor Jameson Coughlin, and today we're joined by CNX Resources CEO Nick Deulis. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks, Jameson.
1: Okay, so for those of you that don't know, CNX is a big player in the Marcellus and Utica Shales in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. The company produced about 1.6 billion cubic feet equivalent per day in the fourth quarter of, or excuse me, I believe it was last year. Does that sound about right, Nick? That's that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A little intro on the company there, but I want to kind of dive right in here and start picking your brain in the short time that I have you today. Natural gas is really kind of front and center right now, right? Europe's supplies have been threatened by Russia's attack on Ukraine. Prices in Europe and Asia were already sky high before this conflict broke out. And the fuel is sort of under attack here at home in many ways, as, as climate concerns grow. Fewer people have been more vocal against that sort of opposition than you. You've started a website. The subtitle of your book is is The Left's Campaign to Destroy America. And I think that you, you do these sorts of segments a little bit more often than your peers do to share your views. So, I mean, I just simply have to ask why. I mean, why have you decided to, to step out in front of all this like this?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a great question to, to kick things off with. I think it goes back to a couple of things. First, one of the big whys or answers to that question is just, for lack of a better term, love. Love for the, the region of northern Appalachia, western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. Love for the industry of domestic energy, natural gas, pipeline industry, uh, petrochemicals, manufacturing, and love of the company, of course. I've, I've spent my entire career here over 30 years, 32 years now and never really worked anywhere else, did a lot of different things. But but I love this company and the people that uh, that work for it alongside me. I think another big sort of answer to the question why is science, okay? I'm an engineer by, by training. And when you look at the science and the physics and the math of a lot of these things circulating, orbiting around energy policy, there are some very popular myths that defy science. And, and one is that notion of zero carbon from a Scopes 1 through 3 perspective, zero carbon with respect to an activity, a company, or or frankly, an economy. There's no such thing. You know, another issue with respect to facts and science is when you look at things like so-called renewables, which oftentimes, whether it's wind or solar, are sort of pointed to as the answer to where we need to go, right, the solution. There are some harsh realities when it comes to their environmental impacts, their carbon footprints, and frankly, their, their human rights violations that might come along with the manufacturing or creation of those. And then, you know, the other side of this science sort of is to the why. In the end, you know, if you want to be anti-carbon, you're going to end up being anti-human. If you look at what natural gas has done in the United States, in the state of Pennsylvania, it has led the charge to a massive decarbonization with respect to environment, a massive reduction in things like particulate, SO2, uh, NOx, mercury emissions. So the science and and sort of the facts are another big why. And then the last thing is the stuff matters. I mean, we are an industry... That without us, society and economies just cease to function. That is a fact. That is a, an economic reality. That's a, a physical reality. We are not a bridge that will, you know, be able to go away uh, tomorrow or ten years from now. We are the, the present, and frankly, we're the future. So you, you add all those up. That's sort of why I'm speaking up. I, I feel an ethical, sort of moral responsibility to do this, especially in the arena of a public company. You know, we've been trained in public companies that we've got a duty to correct misconceptions when they're out there with respect to financials, and now increasingly capital markets looking towards the environmental and the ESG and what's going on with carbon and climate. If you see a misperception that is a gross misperception, I, I feel there's a duty to sort of write that and rationalize it. And that's that's where I got to today. You mentioned the book Precipice and the website and Twitter. If you go back three years ago, I did none of that. I, I sort of subscribed to, to political quietism. I kept my head down And went about our business, and you know, took the approach of sticks and stones may break your bones, right? I'm ignored the naysayers or the vilification, Uh, but things have reached a point where literally the human condition is being impacted, and I think there's an ethical, moral duty to speak up.
1: Yeah, and that's that's kind of one of the reasons why I asked that question. You know, I, I I've covered the company for years. I'm I'm in Pittsburgh, and I think that there has been a shift in in some of the dialogue that you've had on that on this stuff. So, I mean, with all that said, and the fact that you have made that shift. Do you think that the industry is standing up for itself in the way that it should be? Is it doing enough? Whether that's, you know, adapting to some of the demands of, of, of investors and lawmakers or or speaking out against some of the policymaking that we're that we're seeing now?
2: Well, again, all this debate that you hear these days about the social responsibility, the social purpose, the the duty of business people in in the capitalistic economy today you see sort of, you know, one set of views with respect to that. And I subscribe to some of that, agree with some of that. But there's also, obviously, the responsibility to advocate on science fact-based positions that have significant impacts on quality of life and the human condition. And I think from that context, the industry does not do enough, has not done enough to dispel some of these mistruths. And just to give you a feel, you know, this affects all sort of tiers of, socioeconomic uh, standing. It affects all different regions of the globe. Uh, methane that's being manufactured, so to speak, here in Appalachia, it might stay in region. So you know, you're know, you helping the middle class, you're helping small businesses, you're helping right the condition of the citizens of, of the regions we live in. It might be transported to other areas of the United States or North America where they're retooling their economies to get better quality of life based off of natural gas or increasingly might be exported right, to all kinds of other locales. And that might be going to the developed world to create some geopolitical hedges for itself, whether it's Europe or Japan, or it might be going to the developing world where you're literally pulling billions of people out of abject poverty that don't have access to reliable, affordable energy, and, and you're giving them that access sooner rather than later. So to, to stop that or to try to deter that sort of a false set of assumptions or an underlying ideology for the sake of the ideology. Again, that's why I get to the position sometimes it's pretty clear to me and evident that to be anti-carbon, you're ultimately being anti-human.
1: Okay. So, you know, I think that the company has, has taken a bit of a different approach on, on ESG initiatives. You know, you guys came out last year and touted the fact that, that you were, you know, your carbon negative, that got a little bit of pushback but, you know, I, I, I don't think that there are any plans for, for carbon neutrality or, or getting your production certified right now. So, I mean, basic question, are you facing more pressure to, to do these sorts of things, given everything that's going on in the market right now?
2: Yeah, uh, that's another you know great question, of course. And, you know, first, I'll, I'll start with where you, you began on the corporate responsibility report that we issued last year, the 2020 corporate responsibility report that went out in 21 was issued in 21 we did come out with the math, the transparent math that showed from a scopes one and two perspective, we were a net carbon negative. And a lot of that, right, goes back to the uh, innovation that the company drove early in its sort of natural gas history with respect to methane abatement and methane capture. And there was pushback to your point. And interestingly, the pushback really did not center on the math because we transparently disclosed it. And it didn't center on scopes one through two. The pushback was, well, yes, but scopes one through three you're not going to be carbon zero or carbon negative you'll have carbon you'll be carbon positive net carbon positive and that is correct and that is correct for every single energy company business corporation economy or government across the globe that's true for wind and solar and renewable companies because again when you look at scopes one through three not just scopes one and two and you start to look at the upstream carbon footprint of things like wind and solar everyone and everybody is going to be basically net carbon positive. So I found the pushback to be interesting because it really does point back to the math and science and being consistent with the accounting of carbon. Let's not just count scopes one and two for this activity, but then demand the activity adjacent to it or related to it needs to be counted with respect to scopes one through three, all inclusive. Let's let's be consistent across both. On the standards of things like, you know, responsible natural gas and the like, I think there's been a bit of a herd mentality in the industry to to rush to that. It it can be viewed, I guess, in some ways as just being a label, right, Or, or sort of virtue signaling. But I do think and we do feel that there are some underlying standards that tie to RNG that are very worthwhile. So our approach when we get to that arena and how we go about our business is to pursue the facets of what designates as responsible source natural gas those individual attributes to basically up our game. It either improves our yield and reduces our methane emissions. It reduces our risk footprint. It might increase the rigor of how we're measuring and reporting. It might be something that helps us with predictive and preventative maintenance. Where those are standards within RNG, we're going to adopt those and, and run to them full speed. And we've done so. But with respect to how we approach it, we want to be able to measure things. We want them to be tangible. We'll be able to point to basically a a rate of return at the end of the day that leads to sort of value creation on a per share basis with respect to the uh, the ways and the methods and the technologies we're utilizing. And a lot of those do overlap with RNG. So we focus more on the details underneath it. And I suspect if you looked at what we did with respect to standards and how we go about our activity set, we'd be RNG+. plus. But with respect to just, you know, sort of securing the label or the badge, that's something that, uh, that we don't sort of first and foremost focus upon.
1: Okay. So it sounds to me like right now you guys would apply these sorts of standards in-house and you wouldn't you wouldn't seek any kind of third-party certification is, is what you're saying at the moment.
2: That's right. And if there's an entity uh, that does want to come in and take a look and certify and, you know, there's a rate of return tied to it, obviously we pursue it. But if there's no rate of return tied to it, we'd much rather... Uh, basically talk about what we're doing and things like our corporate responsibility report in a very transparent manner that's customized, right, with respect to how we view things and, and sort of lay that out for everybody uh, and take that path with respect to, to communication.
1: Okay. Okay. I mean, I guess before I leave that topic, I mean, is there any concern for you guys that if you don't get some sort of a label with Project Canary or one of these other guys, given the herd mentality, that you would you might face a discount for your gas at some point in the future? Is that just too... Far down the road to to discuss. Yeah, probably too far
2: down the road. I guess a couple thoughts. One, you know, we're never going to rule out something just because of you know personal like dislike or ideology. So Project Canary or anything that's similar to that type of an effort, we're always open minded and we'll always pursue and assess on a regular basis. So down the road, I wouldn't be shocked at all if something on that front or similar to it would occur. But What we will do always, right, is to make sure we are sort of pushing best in class, state of the art, and we're doing it in a way where we're going to transparently disclose it, talk about it incessantly across all of our communication efforts. Could be earnings calls, transcripts, uh, or materials. It could be corporate responsibility reports. It could be speeches, sort of one-off postings on, on the website, et cetera. So you'd be able to look at any given point in time, this year, next year, three years from now, And get a very clear understanding, a very clear download with respect to what CNX Resources is doing uh, when it comes to all the tactics and technologies and and sort of processes with respect to going about safely and compliantly our, our business of manufacturing methane.
1: Okay. Okay. Fair enough. You know, I want to stay in the same lane a bit here before we move on. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we're both talking with each other from Pittsburgh today. You're a native to the area. You're involved in the community. I, I believe that you've, you've started a, a mentorship academy. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So, you know, Pittsburgh has had a rich history when it, when it comes to uh, natural resources. And, and the region has played a, a huge role in the unconventional gas era. Do you feel as though the city has recognized the industry and, and the role it's played in this sort of renaissance that we've seen here in recent years? Do you think that it's that it's received the credit it deserves?
2: You know, you're, you're getting me all worked up uh, with these questions because <laughs> they're, they're awesome questions. But you know, you and I have talked in the past, and, and you're right. We've had this type of a conversation where, being from Pittsburgh and living here my entire life, I I tell people all the time that. I sort of stumbled across this by accident a couple of years ago, but I, I sort of pulled out the map and looked at it. And I've lived my entire life outside of a few years in college within a five mile radius. Um, and that's by choice, of course. So I've seen and grown up in this region, seen the different chapters in the evolution of it. And it's a very interesting and compelling one where there's lessons learned, not just for this region, but for the United States economy, and frankly, the global economy. Because, you know, like, Many others in this region, my family came here from, from a different country a couple of generations ago, and everybody, including subsequent generations, were working in, in steel mills and coal mines and railroads, and then on to, to bigger and better things as, as generations unfolded. But what it was, of course, was this gigantic manufacturing sort of uh, corridor that was largely created and existed where it did because of its proximity to energy, to reliable, affordable you know, energy feedstocks. And then what hit when I was a kid in the late 70s and early 80s was economic devastation. And it was economic devastation because the manufacturing base uh, was eroded and and went away. It either moved to other regions of the country or or was offshore. What resurrected all that uh, literally and figuratively was the shale revolution and sort of that ingenuity and innovation that went with it. And now, right, instead of what was once coal or back in the day oil, where the oil industry was first traded in this region as well, now you've got natural gas and all of the sort of heavier hydrocarbons that go with it. And it is not just sort of resurrecting the middle class and those types of family-sustaining wage opportunities for individuals or young adults that don't want to go to college or don't need to go to college to, to earn a living, but it's also sort of spurring and budding and catalyzing all this downstream activity. Right? We've seen now the pipeline industry come into its own. We've seen the processing industry. We've seen manufacturing, whether it's petrochemicals or the downstream manufacturing from petrochemicals. And you know this type of follow-on cumulative effect, it is epic. It was done not without government support, policy, and subsidy, but in many ways in spite of those things. I mean, it actually occurred in spite of policies that were designed for a very different outcome than what we saw. So it's been very fulfilling to see that chapter. But to your last point of the question, it is very troubling, frankly, to not see leadership. And leadership, you know, it could be political leadership, depending on the individual. It could be institutional leadership, depending on the entity, academic leadership. You know, it's it's defined differently. But if you look at sort of the who's who of this region, um, there is a significant percentage of them, not all of them, but a significant percentage of them that frankly either don't get it right? Or they get it and they don't sort of like it or agree with it because it might be counter to their ideology or their personal views of what should be. And that, that is not leadership. That, that is not in the best interest of the region. So I do worry quite a bit about that. And that's why we get heavily involved in the region at large. Uh, you mentioned the Mentorship Academy. It's a simple concept. We took basically all the zip codes where there's uh, socioeconomic challenges and underserved communities. And we specifically targeted urban and rural, And as you know, right, in in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area, you drive a half hour, you can go from the most urban of urban and all the stuff that goes with it and the most rural of rural and all the stuff that goes with it, good and bad, right, positives and challenges. So we pick these these two nodes of urban and rural, and we're looking for young adults, seniors in high school typically, that don't intend to go to college to get a four-year degree uh, right out of high school, but they want to start a career, a profession, not just get a job. And we spend time with them to do everything from, you know, build up the confidence, develop resumes, coach them on how interv- to interview, uh, getting them to visit and spend days at different manufacturing and energy and professional, like the building trades types facilities across this region. And it's amazing. Two things that hit you uh, when, when you spend and invest the, the amount of time like this with something that's tangible and, and local and impactful in the community. One, just a complete lack of knowledge. So the system, whether it's the educational system or you know the job progression system, the economic system, it largely is missing this segment and this opportunity within our economy when it comes to energy and manufacturing, and two, in how a very short period of time you can just see a tremendous, almost exponential increase in an individual, man or woman, male or female's sort of self-confidence, self-awareness, and basically their overall outlook in life. So I think, you know, as exciting as the Mentorship Academy has been, I think it's a symptom, that excitement that we're seeing is a symptom of a, a bigger underlying problem that really needs to be discussed and, and debated uh, with respect to the regional leadership.
1: Okay. Okay. I, I want to I switch gears now a little bit, but I mean, this is kind of in the same vein, I guess, when you, when you talk about, you know, the, the energy corridor that, that Appalachia is and has been. Quite a few Appalachian pipeline projects have, have been cancelled, you know in the face of of this staunch environmental opposition and and more are are being opposed right now. I mean, d- does that concern you as is, is the leader of a, of a larger operator here? I mean, does it concern you for the for the future growth prospects of this basin?
2: It, it concerns me uh, not so much as, say, the CEO of CNX Resources or the future of the Appalachian Basin, because it is the low-cost natural gas you know, basin, probably not just within the United States, but frankly, across the globe. Where it really gives me concern, however, is as a citizen, as a resident, you know, with respect to my neighbors, the economy, as, as a, as an American. And, and the reason I say that is that what you're seeing with pipes and what you're seeing with pipeline projects or the lack thereof in Appalachia is a piece of a much bigger long-term ground game, strategic game that certain groups or ideologies have, have been pushing for, for quite some time. And you're seeing it across really three facets, and pipes are just one of them. The first facet is sort of the, the ramping up and the ratcheting up of regulations that are frankly designed to raise the cost of the methane molecule, of extracting the methane molecule, and reduce the supply of it. And that's the one that's been out there. That, that's the one facet of this sort of bigger vision against what increases quality of life. It's been around for the longest, like we're the most used to that, right? Mm -hmm. The second facet is what you're bringing up. These are regulations that are basically designed to kill the demand for natural gas, right, to to stymie it. And this is holding up pipeline projects. Uh, You saw Keystone, uh, that kicked off the new administration's tenure, MVP, of course, in Appalachia. You saw what happened recently with the FERC. I think that's been very troubling The way the FERC basically voted along party lines over the past week or so basically gives the the government almost free reign to sort of subjectively decide which pipes get built and which don't. And my suspicion is the looking at the uh, downstream or upstream impacts of pipeline projects creates a very subjective filter that can at will stop any type of a pipeline project in the country. And then the third facet of this So, you got regulations that are designed to increase the cost and reduce the supply. You got regulations that are designed to sort of stymie demand for natural gas. The third one, I think, is the newest that I think is going to play very prominent in 22 and beyond. And that is the effort to basically starve the domestic energy and industry of access to capital. Okay. So, this is getting into things like the Federal Reserve and climate stress tests with the banks, right? If you you hit the banks, basically, then the banks will. Uh, subsequently starve capital to things like the natural gas or pipeline industry. It's things like some individuals that we're considering for adding to Fed leadership, uh, like Mrs. Bloom Raskin, which would be a big mistake from my perspective as well. But those are the three facets of sort of this this long-term strategic game war, whatever you'd want to call it, against domestic energy. And the pipeline segment is a, is a really important one. Because that then again speaks to the ability to fill and see growing demand
1: for our product, which the world is clamoring for. Okay, so if these sorts of things are if they're left unchecked, if people don't start thinking, I guess, more pragmatically about the role that natural gas has to play in the energy mix, and they and, you know they they, they keep trying to, to push away from it in whatever form, do you see what's happening in Europe with prices and, and all this volatility that we've seen? You know. Do you think that that would happen here in the United States at some point?
2: Well, I think actually, Jamison, it's been happening in the United States. It's been more sort of one-offs and, and not as, as macro or across the board. But just look at the last two years up until today and, and you know, wrapping with what's going on with Ukraine. When I, mean, I start with with California, California went from a, a first-rate grid to a third-world grid, all largely because of the incentives and the subsidies and sort of the demands via PUCs and, and, and whatnot. They were placed on utilities where they were redirecting, for lack of a better term, billions upon billions of dollars from sort of normal investment, maintenance investment, transmission, distribution, power generation facilities into charging stations and renewable projects and things like that. And then you had, you know, a 90 plus year old hook on a transmission line that was not replaced in 90 plus years that failed when the wind was blowing. The line fell to the ground, ignited brush, and before you know it, you know dozens of people dead, thousands of, of buildings destroyed. And now every time the wind blows in California, you've got the rolling brownouts. And as I said, that, that totally devastates and damages an economy, particularly the middle class and, and small businesses. And that won't be remediated for, for years. I mean, the Pacific Gas and Electric itself, the current management team said it'll take at least a decade to get this issue resolved now. The second example we had was in Texas. Everybody points to weatherization or lack thereof that that caused some problems, which is true. But what people are not pointing out is why there was a lack of weatherization investment. And it's because the power generators and energy providers in that state were heavily subsidized and incentivized to basically do things like wind projects in far West Texas and run very long transmission lines to the demand centers like Houston and Dallas. And by the way, where those wind farms were placed, They were placed in some of the poorest counties in Texas, and the subsidy oftentimes was in the form of tax abatements that hit the school districts in those very poor western Texas counties. Not very sustainable from my perspective. And then we've got a situation, of course, that happened in the UK, where through their policies and their decisions to shutter certain portfolio segments of their energy mix and embrace others that weren't as reliable, you had the gas lines and everything else this past year, you see what's going on with Ukraine in Putin, and why things like Nord two suddenly become a problem, or Nord one, and really, to me, the ridiculous outcomes of this—it's almost comical how certain sort of leaders will av- go to any extent to avoid, you know, the reality. So you've got Putin, and everybody looks to Putin as sort of the root cause of what's going on in the Ukraine. And I view Putin as another symptom. You know, Putin was created, enabled. He can do what he can do. He feels emboldened because of largely climate change policies. And climate change policies shuttered the domestic EU natural gas fields. It ran to things like wind and solar, which are not reliable, which then backed into, right, just by difference and solving for, backed into a reliance on things like Russian natural gas. And Putin figured that out. China figures that out when it comes to renewables because you have to mine, process, and manufacture most of that stuff in places like China for solar panels and windmills. And what they've done is they've seen we've took a, a geopolitical problem that we had, which was something like the American shale revolution or applying it to Europe, and the climate change policies have basically surrendered that. And now they've created energy dependence on us or me in the case of Putin. And now I'm going to take advantage of that because I can And ironically, you know, as the price of oil goes up and inflation rages, his balance of trade with respect to oil gets better. We have not, right, sanctioned oil, which I find ironic. We talk about vodka and we talk about yachts of these oligarchs and we talk about Mm -hmm. so-and-so not playing a concert in Moscow, but nobody's talking about how we're not going to stop buying Russian natural gas and oil and what the answer to it is. The other fallacy of this is in Boston. I mean, Boston, Massachusetts, New York, of course, they've done everything they can to stop things like pipelines from Pennsylvania to Boston CityGate. And they've embraced wind and solar as heavily as anybody and a zero carbon, you know, fantasy is as, as heavy as anybody. They're as heavily invested into that thought. But now when you get to winter in Boston, they're basically, and they have over the past couple of years, right, taking LNG cargos from Russia. So they've exchanged what would have been A 400 mile, give or take, supply chain from Pennsylvania, and they've traded it and ran into the arms of a 4,000 plus mile supply chain from Vladimir Putin. It makes absolutely no sense whether it's Europe, Boston, Texas, or California, but it does make sense if you get away from the science and the math and the physics and you say, from an ideological perspective and from sort of more of a religious belief system based perspective, this is where we want to go. And there are consequences of that, and we're seeing them time and time again. So yeah, I I do think uh, we're going to see more of these types of sort of data points, touch points add up. And there's nothing like the real world that will bring this reality to root. And it's unfortunate because uh, you could foresee this uh, years ago, but we still insist in some circles of sort of ignoring the true root causes and sort of
1: adjusting policies uh, to reflect a better way. OK, I think that, that I think that provides a good segue into the, the last the last question I had for you today. You know, when you look out at the next 20 years of, of natural gas development in this country, do you think that the future of U.S. gas is overseas? I mean, there, there is political posturing here. And despite everything that's going on in Europe, there there is strong demand that, that is forecasted internationally to displace things like coal. So where's the future for U.S. gas? Is it here? Is it overseas? What do you think? I see three.
2: Again, I'm, I'm speaking now from the perspective of, of economics and, and rate of return. I'm speaking from the perspective of physics, what's achievable, what's not, what's scalable, what's not. And, and I'm speaking from you know, the perspective of, of chemistry and science. If you look at it from that perspective— there are going to be three very broad sort of demand growth centers for natural gas, U.S. natural gas in the coming 10 years and 20 years. First will be sort of domestically or North America. And this is going to be the traditional demand growth centers of, as you mentioned, displacing things like coal, but also increasingly when we come to realization of what wind and solar are able to do, right, and the realization of the cost tied to it and the reliability tied to it. There's going to be a significant slug of natural gas demand domestically just to, to backfill on the grid what was originally penciled in or pretended to be penciled in for wind and solar. I mean they're going to be proven out one way or another, and I think we all know how they're going to prove out. So there's sort of this, this more traditional demand growth segment for U.S. natural gas, which I think will continue to grow. But it's going to be in fits and starts because some reality needs to take root across certain regions and leadership circles of, of the nation. Second big area will be international, as you mentioned, and largely in the context of of grids and and electricity. And I think, again, there will be two large components to that. There will be the sort of stalwart nations of the developed world. So if you look at a Japan or you look at a Poland or you look at a Germany, UK, et cetera, that infrastructure, whether it's their regasification facilities or our liquefaction facilities or the, the transportation assets in the middle those will continue to unfold and grow and expand. And our molecule will continue to be sort of the molecule of choice because of our cost position, because of our you know, economic conditions, etc. cetera, than say other sort of options of where they could get their molecules. So I think that'll be a big demand growth sector. And of course, we're seeing that today with what's going on in Europe. The third one to me is the most intriguing one, And this is where you really start to reshape economies. And that's going to be natural gas getting into new market areas where it's displacing prior or maybe anticipated providers of the energy source for those sectors. So I look at things with respect to the hydrogen economy, transportation, ground transportation, fleet transportation, aviation. You start looking at all of these different segments of the economy which require energy, um, right now, there's, there's going to be this view of a displacement of, say, oil from that to something like hydrogen or something like biofuels or whatever the case might be, or battery-based, right? And I think, in the end, similar to renewables on the electric grid, there's going to be some realities when you look at the physics and the math of this that dictate renewables cannot scale anywhere close to what it would take to provide enough sort of energy to fuel these different segments of the economy, and I think the fallback is going to be natural gas, whether it's CNG or LNG, right, In those sort of forms being actually the answer to decarbonize, to improve efficiency, and basically to, to improve energy independence, because you know, you're, not, uh, you're not relying even less so in, in some instances on things like OPEC and Russia and, and all these other sort of sources of, of oil. So I think those three are a really bright future for the natural gas industry, again, in the context of the real world. Now, how long that takes for the real world to take root in the thinking and the policies of many you know, countries, states, regions that are largely basing their policies on belief system, on ideology instead of the reality. That's the big question in my mind. And how much pain, how much disruption do we have to go through as a society before we wake up to the reality? That's a great question that I don't have the answer to right now.
1: Okay. Yeah. Great assessment there to take us out, you know, a lot to think about when it comes to this whole energy debate for sure. All right. I think that that's it for today. Thanks again for joining us, Nick. We really appreciated having you. Yeah. I enjoyed myself and thanks for having me. Um, And thanks to all of you for
0: listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or bidweek week pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.